From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of Robin Ganser, CEO of American Humane. It was so bad that I woke up and I thought, I'm the breadwinner for my family. I left a very stable, secure, dare I say, exciting uh, job ensuring that social good would happen around the world, not just in my own backyard. And I left that for this. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. American Humane is one of the oldest animal welfare organizations in the U.S. It was actually founded in 1877. Today, the group is probably best known as the largest safety certifier for animals working on film and TV sets. If you've ever seen the No Animals Were Harmed line at the end of the credits in movies, that's American Humane. Robin Gansert, a lifelong animal welfare advocate, became CEO of the organization back in 2010. It was supposed to be the beginning of a period of rapid growth and expansion. But just a few days after she took the helm, Robin discovered that American Humane was $12.5 million in debt. It would take her almost three years to turn the organization around and ultimately to save it. Today, American Humane is thriving and is one of the most influential animal welfare groups in the U.S. Robin wrote about how she turned the organization around and the lessons she learned about leadership in her new book, Mission Metamorphosis, Leadership for a Humane World. In the book, she outlines her journey from the corporate world of banking into the nonprofit sector. While climbing the ranks of a big financial firm, Robin had a moment of clarity one morning sitting with her son in the pew at church. Actually, it was in mass with my little boy, Robert, uh, who was a baby at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I dragged him off one Sunday morning for, for services, and the priest was given a homily. And his homily was this. It was uh, about choosing the love of friends and family and building a better world, or was it about making a lot of money? And it was at a pivotal time in my career. And Robert, at three years old, never sure if he's paying attention in in church or, you know, in services. And he looked up at me in his little three-year-old voice and says, Mom, I choose love of friends and family. And I was like, whoa, because I just had a job offer the week before that was one of those pivotal moments where I had to make that choice. Hmm. Do I stay in the corporate world and you know, climb the ladder for money, or do I really make a purposeful, intended choice to be in the world of creating social good? And that's when I made that decision. And that that wonderful little boy of mine reminded me in that really pivotal moment to uh, to do something that was going to be about love, and I guess your pivot from the the for profit sector to the nonprofit sector was when you went to work for the Pew Charitable Trust. 
Yes, and that was that moment. I had just received an offer from Pew, and I just received an offer from a huge New York investment bank. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, truly an offer that was, I couldn't believe the money, you know. Uh, and hmm. then I was looking at the opportunity to go to Pew. And yes, it would be a difference. It would be a choice of, you know, significant funding for my family, or it would be the choice of, of a good living, but a good living doing what's right. And that choice uh, was very crystal clear that Sunday morning. What do you remember about that transition? What do you remember about discovering the kind of the culture of a nonprofit space? I mean, it is most people who go uh, do work in the nonprofit sector are very mission driven. And I think people in, yes. in the for-profit would say the same thing, but I am not sure that that it's quite the same. Um, what did did you did you see that right away when you got to Pew? Absolutely. Absolutely. The issues we were tackling were of global and local significance, really making a difference in individual lives and in entire ecosystems and uh in large scale reform as well. And it was it was extremely exciting, a very uh, important time in my life to see the opportunity that a, a nonprofit could have in really making the difference. And again, in the lives of kids in schools or foster kiddos that we were able to pass legislation for, and then the larger ecosystem issues in terms of the the uh, marine monuments, the incredible uh, marine sanctuaries that Pew created during that time. It was just exhilarating. You were at Pew for uh, about mm -hmm. two years, um, and then you were offered a position with an organization called American Humane. How how did yeah. how did that happen? Well, you know, it's really close to three years before I left Pew, and I had a wonderful call from a woman spotted my Vita, I think, through a LinkedIn search, and she said, "You know, Robin, um, I know you're not looking." But I've got something that I think might be of interest to you. And we've seen some of the work you've done through Wachovia Philanthropic Strategies, through Pew. And actually what she saw was that in my career at that particular point in time, I think I had been able to secure gifts of almost a half a billion dollars of philanthropic capital that I was able to raise for very significant projects. And so, so she was calling saying, I'm fascinated about how you did that. And we've got an organization that brings together kiddos and animals. And we think you would love both. Would you be interested? And I said, well, what organization is that? I'd like to maybe get out of the policy space and maybe have some more direct services impact. And that's when she mentioned American Humane. And I flew out there, not thinking anything about it, and then had the offer right away. This was and, uh, to uh, Denver where you flew out to? Uh, this was in Denver. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just like sitting in mass that one day, this was another opportunity to have a little reflection. Did yeah. I want to be in global public policy, et cetera? Did I want to get my hands dirty to make some change happen? And I wanted to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty. Were you naturally an animal person at that time? Was was that a focus of, I mean, we all, we all have, I've got dogs and cats that love animals, but, but <laughs> right, most, many of us who have pets love our pets. But was that something that you had been mm -hmm. focused on? Oh, yes. So I've had uh, cats and dogs and 
horses my entire life and particularly, uh, you know, seeing a lot of the abuses in the horse world. That was eye-opening. Hmm. And of course, I was sheltered from abuse of animals growing up. I never saw anything like that. We just loved our animals and loved them dearly. But working or seeing actually uh, abuse in the horse world really broke my heart. So I knew there was an awful lot of opportunity in the space of animal welfare to bring rigor, to bring science, bring incredible evidence-based practices to making a huge difference. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about American Humane for a moment because it is one Mm -hmm. of the oldest animal welfare organizations. It's not the Humane Society of the U.S. It's a different, completely different organization. Um, Tell me a little bit about the story of how, how it started. American Humane was this country's oldest national humane organization, founded way back in 1877 in the time of Reconstruction. Our communities around our country were coming to terms with the ravages of the Civil War, trying to understand what it was to be humane. One of our first initiatives is what we're a leader in 145 years later uh, is farm animal welfare. Hmm. It was farmers and ranchers who went to American Humane back in the 1870s after we were created and asked this group to promulgate legislation that would enforce humane treatment of, of moving herds and flocks across the country on railroads. Hmm. So believe it or not, back then there were no uh, provisions to stop, feed, water, animals, and transportation. And American Humane's very first call to action was to work with farmers and ranchers to change that. And today, I I think probably best known for at the end of films, it says no animals were harmed. American Humane is is one of the biggest certifiers of, of how animals yes. are treated on, on film sets. Absolutely. And actually, we're the largest certifier of animal welfare now in the entire world. Hmm. That program was founded in 1939, thanks to Henry Fonda doing a call to action in Hollywood when he witnessed a a horrible, horrible incident where a horse was driven off of a cliff for the making of the movie Jesse James. And that's when he said American Humane must be brought into Hollywood. And he helped open up the office. Uh, And here we are since 1940 working uh, with the industry. So from what I understand, you were recruited to work at American Humane. and, And when you were interviewed, you asked to see their financials just to kind of get a sense of what was going on, and they were old. You didn't, they were not current. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yes. Keep in mind, my background is, you know, I know numbers. I yeah, right? probably overdid it on the uh, investment and accounting certification side of my of my skill set. So I like financial statements. I like to understand them. And uh, I uh, was told a lot about why they were old. Some of those reasons didn't make sense. But I was also assured by the governing board at the time that there were plenty of reserves to make some changes needed even though there was the warning flag of deficit deficit budgets and uh, and I You could see that you could see that already when before you even accepted the job but but absolutely but we're reassured that there's gonna, there's there's reserves and there's reserves everything's fine you're going to come in and you're going to make sure the fundraising programs on track and etc and I really didn't know what I didn't know and I guess uh, 6 months later you 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 take the job this is 2010 And uh, what did you find out? 
first 30 days on the job, I found out that it was going to be tough to meet payroll. For 60 (laughs) days on the job, I made the decision that we were going to have to sell our Denver headquarters just to pay. How bad was it? (laughs) It was so bad that I woke up and I thought, I've just left the Pew Charitable Trust. I'm the breadwinner for my family. I left a very stable, secure, dare I say, exciting uh, job ensuring that social good would happen around the world, not just in my own backyard. And I left that for this. I read that the reserves, which had been $10 million, were down to one, and that mm-hmm. the deficit built in to the fiscal year budget that you had inherited was $14 million. Yes. Yes. Talk about not having a night of good rest or sleep to rejuvenate. And uh, the very first board meeting I had with this, the board that uh, had brought me on, one board member pulled me aside. He said, well, let me know how much you need to, uh, to close down this place. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I looked at him and I said, then why in the world did you recruit me from Pew if you intended on shutting the crown jewel of America's humane movement down? And that's when I decided perhaps he wasn't on the right board because he wouldn't be on this board with me uh, as the hmm. CEO anymore because that was not going to work for this institution if that's the kind of mentality that we had or that the board had. So the reserves were gone by the time I got there. We were down wow. to to nothing. I realized after a meeting uh, with the philanthropy staff, a major gift was considered $250. So what was going on at this institution was an utter failure of leadership, an utter failure of culture, hmm. an utter failure of managing financials. Uh, and it was shocking. Such good intentions. And I want to say good intentions were there. People were good hearted, intended to save kids and animals. But we had a mission identity crisis And we had a financial crisis. And those two crises were hitting head on right within 30 days of me walking into American Humane back in 2010. How many employees did did you have at that time? We had close to 200. uh, And uh, 200. And a lot of people were very upset. They were not happy. They knew that this could not continue. The institution received a large bequest and were living on uh, living on that uh, in deficit, thinking that they were making good investments in a future return on that investment, which there was no strategic plan. there was no uh, there was no game. So Robin Ganser is the new president and CEO of American Humane, and she's found out after taking the job, that American Humane is financially crippled. So Robin first has to cut costs and sell assets, starting with American Humane's Denver headquarters. It was our headquarters. We were not in Denver proper, but in a suburb. It was a beautiful location near a little airport. But the only real asset we had was that building. And I recognized we needed to pay about eight to 10 months in accounts payable that we had uh, built up. So we had to pay our vendors. So we put that building on the market with board approval and were able to get out of that heavy duty load of paying vendors. We also cut consultants. We cut a lot of consultants out of the mix right away, cut back travel, cut back conferences, cut back a lot in that institution 
that uh, needed to be scaled back before we looked at cutting staff members. And so you decide to move the headquarters to Washington, D.C. as well. Yes. When I first interviewed for the role, I said American Humane has to have a Washington, D.C. national headquarters presence. We're not known as an institution in this country. We lost our share of voice and power because we're not in D.C., which is where all national nonprofits or most have, a, have an office or a headquarters. One of the challenges of, of being tapped as a leader, especially of a nonprofit, is you can't you can't always choose your leadership team. Certainly not right away. You you inherit a team. Um, is that is that also what what you faced? Yes, yes. I inherited brilliant people devoted to the mission for sure. Mm. Uh, and you know, but there were times that we were looking for different skill sets. And uh, you know, what was the reality of the situation is many great programs and great program leaders. Harsh reality, there was no funding for those programs. Hmm. And so we had to let go of a lot of talent uh, in that process because there simply wasn't a fundable source to keep that good work going forward. I guess one of the – and you've written about this in your book. One of the things that you – you that influenced you from, from the get-go was um, a concept known as transformational leadership strategy – um, tell me what transformational leadership strategy is. Well, for me, uh, my interpretation of this is that it's looking at your reason for being as an in, in institution. What are your challenges that you face and how can you achieve uh, a successful impact and result? For your listeners who are in the corporate arena, that's, you know, what product are you selling? Mm. And just to be very direct, what programs were we selling? Transformational leadership is about having that moral courage to have that hard analysis on your programs or your products. Is it aligned to your mission? Are your financial resources in place? And importantly, is your culture aligned with a strategy to achieve a successful outcome. All of this drives meaningful transformation in an organization. And what I found were absolute lacks and, and uh, weaknesses in building that model out early on at American Humane until we made some change. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy to use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. 
It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. As you began to kind of think about what this meant, first of all, I imagine within the first six months of, you know, you're still kind of trying to stop the bleeding. Did you gather, I mean, did you, I mean, it sounds like you, you had to redefine or reinvent the organization. And what did you do? I mean, did you hold a retreat? Did you did you gather your leadership team and say, listen, we've got to completely redefine what we, who we are and what we stand for? All of the above <laughs> and so much more. Mm. There were retreats. There were conversations with the board. Importantly, there were constituent meetings. I felt it was a need to do a, uh, an under, uh, do a tour, an understanding of our constituents in each of our program areas to uh, understand why American Humane was valuable. I also brought in some, called on some friends at Pew to come and do an analysis of our programs. You know, hmm. Pew has a robust and rigorous program evaluation unit. And I wanted to ask those really important Pew-like questions. Is this program, uh, does the outcomes in this program, are they relevant, reliable, timely, and timeless? Would we see significant changes or outcomes in one to three years? Would they uh, meet the lens of being uh, in a different political landscape? And what we ended up doing was taking 40 very disparate programs that weren't funded and uh, really remodeling those into four program planks. Wow. That allowed us to refocus resources, time, talent, energy, communications, legal, all the operational needs to make those four program planks, just like a political campaign, those program planks and platforms strong and successful again. You say you had 40 programs and you you kind of said, let's focus on four core areas. I think they were rescue, humane research, Kids and Healthy Animals, and then Hollywood. Is that is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. What about the staff? I mean, I I read that that in that you decided also in 2011, early on, to do a staff survey, uh, an, a, an employee survey, to find out what how people felt and what did what, what did you find? You know, I I found a lot of fear, hmm. uh, angst, disappointment. I found division being a key word. In fact, the units were set up in divisions, and that word really described the culture. I found anger, and anger was due, of course, to fear. Uh, How would this impact their work, their career, their livelihood, importantly, their family from an economic standpoint? Uh, And I didn't find what I really wanted to find, which was a lot of pride. Hmm. Pride and sense of ownership, pride in the mission, pride in the ability to move forward and be part of the solution. I only hmm. found that in pockets, to be honest with you. Imagine, Robin, that, that some of that probably came from the – right when, you, when a new leader comes aboard, there's always anxiety, right? And you were, you, you were making really big changes quickly, but I imagine that that, that dissatisfaction was just kind of – 
built into the culture at the time. It it, it was the product of years and years of of demoralization, maybe. Absolutely. And you didn't uh, overstate that. <laughs> you did not overstate that. It was years and years of uh, demoralization that impacted this workforce of people who came in wanting to be humane heroes, humane angels impacting their community. Intentions were so good. But again, culture eat strategy for breakfast all day long. And mm-hmm. if your culture is toxic, if it doesn't embrace the power of positivity, then guess what? Your institution will have cancers throughout the organization. We had a lot of cancer, uh, a lot of toxicity. You tell a story about um, a pivotal moment in your time there. It was um, after the, the, the earthquake in Japan, the Fukushima earthquake. It happened on a weekend and and from what I understand, you called your, your head of communications and you said, hey, we got to gather your team together to see what we can do, a response. Certainly lots of animals were displaced. And, um, and he told you that the team had said that they, they don't work weekends. <laughs> can you imagine being a first responder and this is the, re- the quote-unquote response the CEO gets? Hey, we don't work weekends. What? Yes. And what did that, that really happen? And and how did that sort of trigger you to make changes when 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 you got that response? Well, that was a pretty easy uh, opportunity for change, right? We run a humanitarian organization. When animals are in crisis, we work twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and that is just the way that all good first first responder organizations. You know, respond. That's your mission. Right. That's your mission. So we had to make a round of huge cuts. I was also told, too, oh, nobody will ever um, be interested in funding a new rescue truck. I said, well, why are we dependent on one rescue truck? a huge one, granted, in Colorado, why don't we have rescue caches throughout the country? Well, nobody will ever fund that. I heard Mm. that through our philanthropy team. And I said, well, you haven't asked the right people. Mm -hmm. And that's when we launched a remaking entirely of our rescue team and and the rescue model. And we created emergency caches throughout the country all funded by incredible humane heroes who allowed us to be within three to four hours of an, a natural disaster. We can be boots on the ground to save animals in the highest risk of the FEMA areas. We deployed right away to Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy way back in the day, and that devastating EF5 tornado. Houston with Harvey, Louisiana, every time there's a storm in Louisiana, we have our rescue truck right there, boots on the ground, going up through California. Uh, And this rescue model I knew had to be remade when I was told on that pivotal day uh, when the devastation of Fukushima occurred, hey, we just don't work weekends. Yeah. Well, guess what? You do now or you don't work here. So I think you shed about 60 percent of the staff, probably in large part because of budget challenges. You You couldn't pay them. But also you want to remake the culture. Absolutely. And you just can't sugarcoat that. You know, when a staff becomes demoralized, if they can't get re-energized, then for their own uh, well-being and their own mental health and engagement in their career, it's best that they move forward, too. Every institution needs to be, especially in the nonprofit space, needs to be staffed by those who are on fire 
on fire every day for that mission, passionate advocates ready to rock and roll to have the outcome that we need in the space. Uh, The days are too short. Time is limited on the face of the earth. We've got a lot of work to do. And if people aren't motivated and ready to do it, then they need to find a career that better matches themselves in terms of their own needs. Do you think that there, I mean, from a management perspective, it, it, it would have been possible to to re-energize people who were kind of just, you know, feeling super negative and maybe misaligned at that point with the mission? Or do you think it was it was just almost impossible? In this case, we didn't have the luxury of time and funding mm. to support people who weren't going to give it their all every single day. We had to have people uh, engaged, committed, 100% committed, and believing in the power of positivity if we were going to turn the corner, save uh, the Titanic. We were sinking. I just had to recognize the fact that if you were on board, you had to commit today so we could move forward. And if you weren't, then we had to have an exit strategy. I didn't have the luxury of waiting for people to turn around. And that's the reality of it. I don't think many organizations in financial or mission crises have that luxury of waiting for people to get back on board. I think people have uh, their ability to choose, and if they're not on board, they need to find work elsewhere. All right, so 2012, you're now down to a comparatively skeletal team, right? Yes. And you are trying to close a, a deficit, and... I, from what I read, like people on the team had to give up their their retirement benefits for a while. You were paying your own travel expenses. Um, yes, uh, it must have been really just a. I can't even imagine how how hard it was. I mean, what what do you remember about that time? I remember buying the boardroom table in our D.C. office out of my own funds because we needed a boardroom table so the board could actually meet uh, and have a proper table. I hope you bought it at Ikea. Uh, I uh, I bought it at a store like Ikea, okay, I can tell you that. But, uh, but you know, that's that's true commitment in time of, of really um, huge stress uh, in so many ways. But I had this one mantra that kept me going, and it also allowed me to have a positive uh, or have an outlook during uh, COVID, too. I just believe you have to stay positive in all things. And I figured I didn't have it so bad because my predecessor in World War I was sending his people to the trenches to actually care for war horses and donkeys and mules. And I thought, all I have to do is buy a boardroom table and maybe pay for my own travel and buy the team the pizza to keep everybody going through some of those dark times and that were team-building times I had to make some investments in. I didn't have it so bad. How do you... I mean, one of the things you also had to do was to make sure that you you could raise money, right? I mean, your funding sources are, are come from entirely from, from donors, right? Yes. Yes. And I had a little bit of money, a grant through uh, the Hollywood Union for our Hollywood program, mm-hmm. but didn't cover the cost of the Hollywood program at that time. So, yes, it was uh, the generosity of those in the animal space that grew up with American Humane, loved American Humane, and uh, had always supported our work. And I had to build new relationships. And one of the first new relationships I built was with a wonderful woman. Lois Pope. Uh, Lois is one of our generation's amazing philanthropists. Uh, she's based here in Florida. And and gosh, 
just six months after meeting her. She presented me with a million-dollar check on the stage of our Hero Dog Awards, our new television show that we launched at American Humane as part of our new branding effort. And you gave an award to a Hero Dog. And Oscars for canines, for those working dogs. So smart. It was so incredible. Yeah. You know, we already have such a name in Hollywood. Let's create a red carpet show. And, and you would ask people to nominate dogs all over the country. In seven working dog categories, military dog, <laughs> law enforcement dog, service dog, therapy dog, your shelter dog, and a dog that has done something extraordinary in your own community or or for uh, for greater humanity, uh, or even for other dogs and other animals. And so this was an incredible idea. And Hallmark, the CEO of Hallmark, uh, Bill Abbott, loved it. He said, I can't wait to air the Hero Dog Award. Wow. So we received our first television deal, first couple of months on my job. That was one of my rays of light that I knew could remake American Humane was this television show that celebrated the power of dogs in our lives. We're now in our 11th season, if you can believe that, of Hero Dog Awards. But it was also a rallying cry for our donors. And on that stage of that very first award show, Mrs. Pope presented American Humane with a million-dollar gift. Wow. And that was enough funds to give us the breathing room we needed to continue our transformational process. That, that um, I mean, that idea was so simple and so smart because people obviously love their dogs and people want to nominate their I think you guys, you guys get like hundreds of thousands of nominations, right? We do. And we get millions of votes each year. Isn't that yeah. amazing? It's, it's stunning. And, uh, and last year, I'm really proud to say that we had an 8% increase in viewership for our awards show on Hallmark. Uh, the other big award shows in our country had declines in, in viewership, but ours went up. And I think that uh, it just goes to show that uh, uh, dogs are truly man's best friend, and we needed them more than ever this particular year of COVID. So Robin Ganser, through major cost-cutting and fundraising, has turned American Humane around. And thanks to some smart marketing, more Americans started to know about American Humane's animal welfare mission. So I wanted to end our conversation by asking Robin about how she leads her team and how she inspires trust within her organization. One of the things that you, you write about when it comes to, to leadership teams is, is about delegating. It's about essentially allowing them or freeing them up to lead. And so I wonder how you see the role, your role as CEO of the organization. Are you more effective when you focus on a very sort of big picture and broad orientation rather than getting into the weeds of things? I think my team would respond to that question by saying, she knows the weeds, but she stays above them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I know the details of what goes on in the institution, and I believe it's my duty to know those details. I need to know what goes on, and I learned that by actually walking around, going to those places, to those constituents and uh, in Asia, spent a lot of time in Asia, a lot of time in Africa, boots on the ground as we developed our ecotourism program. I spent a lot of times in farms and ranches. So I know the weeds. And I think a CEO needs to know the fundamentals of operating, but it's best to delegate. I always believe you hire and you empower great people to do great work. And then your own ability to uh, achieve a larger strategy is going to be amplified because you have trust and you have qualified people doing incredible work. How do you 
how do you um, create a culture where the leadership team does not always seek out your approval or the approval of the CEO? You know, first and foremost, I don't muddle. So there's not necessarily everything that has to be approved for Mm. from the CEO. So I think it's about developing processes. We have, of course, fiduciary processes where the CEO does have to approve and sign off. But let's say a traditional communications process. Uh, I have uh, a really important integral position, which is a chief operating officer. He and I speak every day, and I trust and empower him to make those chief operating officer decisions and program. And so he knows when to run it up. I also have an exceptional general counsel. And my general counsel is in always protecting the institution from a legal and risk management standpoint. Yeah. You've now run this organization for almost probably about 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have already been able to articulate a vision and gather people around your vision. But it's not easy. And you went through through a time when, you, you know, not everybody bought into that vision. Is it do you think that when a leader can't get people to buy into his or her vision, it's because the leader is failing to articulate it? Well, or because, I mean, obviously, it could be a bad vision, but <laughs> but I mean, how much of that, let's say the vision is a good vision, but people st- mm-hmm. still aren't buying into it. How much do you think that has to do with the failure of the leader to articulate the vision well? First of all, as you said, it could be a bad vision right. and people can't won't buy into something that doesn't make sense. So the leader has a uh, a responsibility to be a good communicator, an effective communicator, to communicate the whys, the hows, the the who's, uh, and really get people engaged uh, and invite them to have ownership on that journey. And that I think will drive some uh, some success in convincing those to join. I will also say that leaders who can't articulate might not be in the right place for them. Maybe there's another place for them to express their leadership skills. I also think that positivity is is crucial for leaders. Everyone's faced the challenges of COVID-19. Yeah. I believe that all leaders have been asked this year uh, to stay positive. It's important to develop that culture of uh, kindness, compassion, love, accountability, uh, loyalty to mission. That's really important. And I think sticking to that mission, when you have mission drift, that is uh, incredibly challenging to the staff and incredibly challenging to the constituents. So sticking to that mission is what I found at American Humane to be incredibly valuable in our transformation. You know, Robin, you've mentioned this idea of staying positive um, a a few times in our conversation, and I think it's clear that that is something that is very important to the way you lead. I wonder, you know, we're, we're also in an era where transparency, right, is a hugely important part of leadership. And I wonder whether those are those two things are always compatible. Bear with me for a second because it sounds a little bit strange. But, I mean, there are times when an organization is in crisis or things are, are really challenging, like, like the pandemic, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you've got to really kind of level with people and say, you know, we're, we're, we're not in great shape. So can you balance those two things? Can you project positivity, by, but at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. um, be really transparent when things are not good? Then you have to define what is good. 
Right. You know, I think uh, transparency and positivity can go hand in hand because there's something extremely reassuring and challenging times about transparency. And it's very positive when you have trust in your organizational culture that you can be transparent with the real facts. That's not negative. Uh, What's positive is the trust in being able to share the truth. There's also an incredibly positive value in the value of moral courage, right? What's really happening is this. But in that same rallying cry, when you're talking about the transparency of dark times that we face with COVID, cuts that might be pending, etc., that takes moral courage. But it also takes a positive approach because there's a value in that trust in the transparency that I think results in a positive culture. What do you what do you think um, a leader has to have? What qualities does a leader have to develop in order to be effective? First and foremost, moral courage to do what's right, even though there may be forces aligned against you. Always do what's right for your mission. And that does take an awful lot of moral courage because it's tough. It's tough and it's lonely uh, when you're a CEO of any organization. I think importantly, too, uh, another key value set is to actually know your people and know your organization, know, know, know what's going on. Have that curiosity, because if you have the curiosity, you'll be able to really have a, uh, a full lens of what's happening in the institution, and you need that. But I would say first and foremost, moral courage. You had leadership positions throughout your career, going back to, to Wachovia Bank and Pew and, and now American Humane. Mm-hmm. So you were able to hone and develop your skills over time. But do you think that, that leaders are born or do you think that people learn how to become leaders? That is such a great question, right? I think leaders are born. I think it's uh, an innate quality. I think managers can be created but I think leaders are born. When I see effective leadership in action, I sit back and I say, what were they doing when they were in third grade? What were they in kindergarten? How were they like? And I just believe that uh, it's some innate qualities that allow a really effective, inspiring leader to do what's needed uh, to get the job done and to take people along with them. That's Robin Ganser, president and CEO of American Humane and author of Mission Metamorphosis, Leadership for a Humane World. Since the start of the pandemic, American Humane has provided 870,000 meals to animals in need as part of their Feeding the Hungry campaign. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top, from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.